0: Our good friend, Mr. Al Bat. Good morning, Mr. Al Bat. How are you today?
1: I am uh, good. I'm, I'm staring out the window down by the, the road there, and bull thistle is blooming. It's, it's more robust than the Canada thistle, and I think the flowers are redder. But it's covered, when I took the mail down, it's just covered with... Uh, these wonderful soldier beetles, goldenrod soldier beetles, and they're good guys, so I'm happy to see them. And I'm starting to see uh, some yellow flowers of goldenrod and, and sunflowers, wild sunflowers. And if you get up on one of these kind of... Oh, humid mornings, and you're going for a walk, or you got to walk to the car or something. Just look down in the grass in some places. There are these dew-covered spiderwebs. Mm-hmm. And, boy, if you're carrying a cell phone, uh, take a photo of a couple. Man, they are so photogenic. And here in the yard, the young Baltimore Orioles are swamping, literally swamping the jelly feeders. They're just eating everything. I think I could say they're literally swamping, maybe literally overwhelming the feeders. And, you know, as the great philosopher Adam Sandler said, oh, so many things for me to wonder. Oh, I love grape jelly. (laughs) And uh, boy, so do these Baltimore Orioles. And I missed your song about the possum. You know, I I was doing, I have this, uh, I'm a local elected guy, and I was doing one of the things on the phone. So I've certainly got you on here, but, you know, I have to listen to what the person on the other end is saying once in a while, too. So I miss things. But it was neat yesterday hearing about those... uh, oh i'm gonna a bumblebee bat but it's got is it kitty's hognose bat
0: yeah it's the, the other thing I, I saw that it's the smallest mammal in the world and i never heard of that and you know a lot of times we forget that bats are mammals but did you see the picture i think i said it to you didn't i i don't think so oh, okay well we, we must have saw the, the same thing then but yeah it was the this little teeny bat we don't have them around here do we
1: no, and uh, you were talking about them yesterday, so I haven't oh. seen anything on it. But I they're—I believe they're in Thailand, if I'm remembering correctly, the smallest bat. And they're uh, just indescribably uh, un- small. They're just uh, maybe, I don't know if they were... You know, we think of it as an ounce as really being small. These guys are nowhere near an ounce. So they're just, uh, and they're cute, but I think all bats are cute. So
0: <laughs> that's because that's your name. My dad yeah, said, that's your I name. Did. Don't wear it out. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh,
1: Michael Bonner, a good guy from Cortland. And he said, in all my years out here in the boondocks, I've always seen nuthatches throughout the year. This year since spring, nada. Now all of a sudden they're back and of course there's no mistaking their song or croak. Did they just decide the pickings at my feeders weren't to their liking? And I heard on the radio that killdeers nest by the Arctic Circle. I thought they nested mm. here, yeah. hence the pretend broken wing, etc. But I see in my book their summer range does extend north to the northern edge of Manitoba. So do they nest up there also? Uh, You must have the patience of a saint to answer all these annoying emails (laughs) from a Brit. Uh, You're awfully nice, Michael. Um, Nuthatches. These small birds with the big heads feed primarily on insects in the summer. So there are more of them probably now showing up at feeders once again because the young ones are out now. And uh, nuthatches are cool because they live in pairs all year long. So we will certainly see them here all year long. And they do nest here, and they're just, uh, I don't know why you're not, I don't know why you're not having them there. Um, they just, they go away from the feeders like a lot of them do because they have to pump all that protein into their babies. So I'm thinking they'll be back for you, Michael. Maybe today they'll show up uh... killdeer they do nest here of course but they do nest in the far north i've seen them in southeast alaska i've seen them in the yukon so they are uh, they go a long way some of them to nest uh... brenda katasik from st peter uh... she's a wonderful volunteer at the hum- henderson hummingbird hurrah and also at the hummingbird garden in henderson and she said there's at least a dozen plus hummingbirds at the garden now so if uh, folks like to stop out there uh, some monarchs are also going around they've uh, had to make a few changes there Uh, they lost some things some of the plants and it it gets pretty heavily in water sometimes as uh, anybody that's picked up a paper or listened to karen knows henderson uh, battles water in a lot of ways over there their roads are um there's always a road closure. You, you'd think every day there must be a road closing in Henderson. How many roads do they have there? And it's a beautiful, beautiful town. Uh, she also sent me a photo of a vireo nest. It looked like a red-eyed vireo, But uh, nests can be really hard. Uh, you can kind of narrow it down from photos. But to get it exact sometimes, it can be, a, it can be a troublesome. Uh, David and Rachel, and I always struggle with this name, I'm going to say sure, S-C-H-E-U-R-E-R. And David and Rachel, I apologize for probably getting that wrong. I. Played ball with a guy uh, for a year with that last name, and his wasn't pronounced anything like that. But uh, uh, he played ball with me, so he was probably getting his name wrong. Uh, they're from Mankato, and they said this winter we're putting two birdhouses of, on shepherd's poles and suet and seed out in front of our picture window. I think that's a good plan. Uh, now do birds even build nests in the winter I was thinking of putting them out in the fall since they will have more stuff to build with before the snow flies also what kind of birds would build in a house for winter do cardinals winter in Minnesota we live in Mankato should I seal these these houses before winter or wait till next year don't think anything will want to build in if it smells Uh, there are no songbirds that nest in the winter Uh, great horned owls. They begin nesting in January and February. They're our first bird to nest. Uh, Bald eagles aren't far behind them. Chickadees, nuthatches, woodpeckers, and some others will sometimes use birdhouses to help them battle the elements in the winter. On occasion, we'll get Carolina wrens that are here, and they actually, some bird places, sell little Oh, little nests that are kind of, they're like little insulated nests that hang down, and Carolina Wrens are just happy to go into those. I had a friend who had one came into his garage in Austin. So he got one of these things up and put it in the garage, and the little Carolina Wren went right into it. So each night he would, uh, the Carolina Wren would fly in, and this guy would hit the uh, door closure button, And down come the door. Then he'd get up early in the morning, go back out, and hit that button again so the wren could go out of the garage and uh, spend his day. And at night they would go through it again. So he and the wren bonded over a a garage door opener pretty much.
0: Don't a lot of birds (laughs) winter in in the arborvitae trees? I always find that in the wintertime a lot of them head toward the arborvitaes because they're such a nice thick shrub or bush that keeps them protected a little bit.
1: Yes, and I, I notice, uh, oh, uh, cardinals love those, but I, boy, I notice house sparrows and juncos galore in there. Sometimes I walk by Ar- Arborvitae, and in the winter I, uh, we live on a farm, so you get a lot of people out here with uh, livestock and grain and everything, so we get a lot of house sparrows. I don't see them for most of the year. They start coming in in the fall. And then in the winter, they like us here, so they spend the winter with us. And I walk outside, and the trees... Arborvitae singing, all that little cheerful chirping of all those little house sparrows. They're all in those arborvitae, just living the good life, because it must be like going to Miami for them, <laughs> going into an Arborvitae. Yeah. But uh, David and Rachel, they again, chickadees, nuthatches, woodpeckers are the primary ones that we think of that will use those. They don't use them all the time, but uh, they use those birdhouses to help them battle the elements in the winter. Uh Again, cardinals are here all year long. Uh, Boy, their beautiful presence is a gift on a cold day. And I wouldn't seal the birdhouses when you put them out and maybe put them out in the the spring. But you sure can put them out uh, and see if anything goes in there this winter. I would love to hear. Uh, Rita Granson from Mason City said it was a glorious day to be out and about. Well, they all are. She said, we went to check the shorebirds at Elk Creek, Silver Lake, Rice Lake, and the Ventura area. Uh, 65 species were seen. In the landfill between Clear Lake and Mason City, there's over 400 Franklin's gulls with a few ring-billed gulls. Uh, Brad Amondroth saw a Eurasian collared dove in Lesseur County. Sharon Holser in Watonwan County had a lark sparrow and a clay-colored sparrow. Ronald Erpolding in Waseca County saw a field sparrow. Milton Blumberg of Nicollet County saw a con- I don't know, Milton's from up north, but in Nicollet County he saw a common gallinule. And Luke Hollander saw a yellow-crowned night heron in Steele County. That's a pretty cool bird to see. They're all pretty cool birds to see. Helen Abramson, she lives in Meadowlands. Meadowlands is a a northern Iron Range kind of town up between uh, Hibbing and Duluth, up in that area. It's around cotton and cherry and the Zim Bog, which maybe is the best place uh, if you had to bird one place in Minnesota, other than your yard or local park, that might be the number one. And uh, it's like a lot of those little towns around the, the state and around the country. The little ones are just getting smaller. It's where, always oh, a Schneiderman Furniture got its start up there. But Helen said uh, she wrote of her hummingbirds going through a lot of syrup since late July due to the fledglings. And sometimes, she said, all six ports on one of her eight feeders were used at the same time. And they were getting along so well, she figured they must all be young ones. And she wondered if the adults had left. Uh, Helen, you know, a few hours of daylight trigger these hormonal changes that cause the urge to fuel up and fly south if you're a hummingbird. And with a lot of people, too, I guess. But hummingbirds leave while we still have nectar-rich flowers are still in bloom and the feeders are full they've still got to get going so you know feed them I know I mention this a lot but feed them as much as you want you're not going to hold them back uh, ruby-throated hummingbird males leave first and I've often said that the hummingbird males are kind of deadbeat dads They come in and they chase other males away, and then they kind of (laughs) patrol the area, make sure other males stay out of there. The females do all the nest building, all the incubating, all the raising of the babies. And when they're done and the babies come out, the male says, "Uh, I'm going south because a lot of them will leave as early as mid-July. And the females will follow after that, and then the juveniles will migrate for their first time all alone boy that's amazing and we always thought uh, just passing a driver's test was such a daunting <laughs> task and these guys are saying you know i'm going to i'm going to fly across the gulf of mexico um a neat uh, question from a listener said how many species did audubon really discover uh John James Audubon. I've been an Audubon member forever. Of uh, course, I didn't go back far enough to meet John James Audubon, but it's said that he practiced the first bird banding in North America in 1804, He ringing silver thread, yarn, or wire. I've read a number of books about Audubon. Some say thread, some say it was yarn, some said thread was, could be either thread or yarn. They called them both thread or it could have been a little silver wire, around the legs of eastern Phoebes. And Audubon claimed that 40% of his tagged or banded Phoebes returned home. But an archives of natural history paper doubted this, as larger-scale studies found a much lower return rate, some like 1.5%, as opposed to 40%, so quite a dramatic change. And the, the paper also suggested Audubon was in France at the time of the Phoebe's return, so he had a little uh, uh, liberal science, I guess, there, a uh, very liberal science. Uh, Audubon's method of painting birds was specimen-based ornithology. He killed them with small <gasps> shot and then arranged them with wire into a natural-looking tableau that, might include nests or stumps or branches or, or predators. He put some with the snakes and things on them.
0: But they were all he dead. Com- that's crazy.
1: Yep, that's well, that's the way they did it in those days. But they I didn't guess have all the
0: to cameras. Think, yeah, to think about it, how do you get something that's alive and is moving around and you don't have a digital picture? So I guess that makes sense. <laughs>
1: And now people, uh, a lot of them still like to paint from a live bird. They'll go out and just look at one through a scope. But I think most anymore will certainly probably do that, but then they'll take photos and do all those different things to make a a combination painting that, that works. Audubon compiled his works into a masterpiece called Birds of America. And in those days, it was common for authors to seek subscriptions from members of the public willing to pay for the work's completion. In 2010, a copy of Birds of America sold at a Sotheby's auction for $11.5 million. $11.5 million. Uh, Audubon is, uh, boy, I'm going to finally get around to answering the question here. Audubon is credited with discovering around 25 species and 12 subspecies. But there are other mystery birds that appear nowhere else but in Audubon's watercolors. He had a Bartram's Vireo, oh, what, oh a, my favorite, the Carbonated Swamp Warbler. Uh, Cuvier's Kinglet, Townsend's Finch, or maybe it was Townsend's Bunting, uh, small-headed flycatcher, and Blue Mountain Warbler. I thought, man, you know, I'd love to see a Blue Mountain Warbler. That just sounds wonderful. These were all likely hybrids, birds with uh, uh, odd odd plumages, immature birds, uh, sexually dimorphic specimens, or birds no one else saw. Uh, Audubon had been known to stretch the truth on occasion uh, because there was the Washington Eagle. Audubon first saw one on a trip up the Mississippi River in 1814. A few years later, he shot one in Kentucky, and according to the measurements he said he took, it stood 3 feet 7 inches tall and had a wingspan of 10 feet 2 inches. But again, the journal American Naturalist opined that it was a large, immature bald eagle. Was it a case of avian misidentification or a con that duped people for financial gain? He wanted more subscriptions. Who knows? But either way. He was a brilliant bird artist. And the Massachusetts Audubon Society began in 1896 when people became alarmed at the number of waterfowl being killed for use as, so they'd have feathers for their hats. And the National Audubon Society did not uh, begin. It was at that time. It was founded in 1905, so a few years after the Massachusetts Audubon Society. So, uh, you know, he was uh, an amazing artist. I know uh, some people will di- say, "Yeah, but he was a con artist," and maybe a little bit more of well i don't know i think he was more of a brilliant bird artist but he did some things but maybe that's the way it was in those days as we say we we look back through the lenses of a different time and now we're thinking boy you know shooting something and then painting it and if you look at some of audubon's photos they will have um, well, uh, at least to me, they're they're wonderfully done, but they have a little bit of less than lifelike quality oh. to some of them, and that should be no surprise because they were dead. I mean, they painted them, but, uh, boy, what a marvelous painter. I, I just uh, love looking at his stuff, and I, I wish I had one, one I of do, those original books.
0: I do have a question, though. So after A Bird is Dead, does, you know, how things um, naturally decompose, et cetera? So would anything be different on a dead animal versus if he was painting it live. You know, you mentioned it doesn't have such a life, lifelike look, but was there physically anything that might change that could have affected the way the picture looks?
1: Yeah, certainly that glim in the eye ah. would have died out, but he would try to sketch them and paint as much as he could almost immediately because, mm. uh, of course, he didn't have a portable freezer or anything to <laughs> oh, throw nice. him in, too. so he had to get stuff done. So I would guess uh, he would um, shoot whatever he thought he could paint that day, and then get really busy and paint like a, like a madman so he could get that done. And uh, yeah, it was. Uh, I don't know how much time you'd have to paint those things because even if you know for taxidermists, you can throw them in the freezer, but you can only keep them in there so long before they lose. <laughs> Lose uh, sheen would be the wrong word, but they lose some of that life's quality that uh, just makes birds the, the brilliantly beautiful things they are. Hmm. Uh, a text message, somebody said, why are they called whooping cranes? And it looks like whooping crane, but whooping crane. And I, I've i heard people call them whooping cranes. I probably have too on occasion, and it, the birds, they don't care. But it's whooping crane w-h-o-o-p-i-n-g and the name probably originated from it, the birds will make a loud single note vocalization and they'll give it repeatedly when they are alarmed so they they hoop it up but uh, <laughs> unlike the old cowboys that went into the long branch saloon on gun smoke to hoop it up these uh, these guys or did they whoop it up what did they do in those days? Did they whoop it up or whoop it up? Those I always thought it was
0: came? was whoop because don't well, or yeah. is it or is it whoop because it was a whoopy question and it spelled the same.
1: <laughs> yeah, whoop and whoop, all the guys or... would come in from that uh, cowboy trail ride and yes. they'd come in there and come into the Long Branch and oh, Miss Kitty would have to send a text message to to Matt Dillon over there at the Marshall's office because they were misbehaving and he would come over there and club one over the head with a. Uh, with a butt of a gun or something, and just things would settle down right away. And he, he, I think he always thought they were good boys. They just needed, uh, <laughs> get, you know, get a little wild for a while because they worked hard. So Matt, he was six foot seven. Matt Whoa. Dillon, a, a Minnesotan,
0: and was really, really I didn't know that.
1: Of, huh? Yeah, he made John. John Wayne was six four and. Uh, James Arness was 6'7", and uh, the arness they did all right. His brother was a star, Peter Graves, on sure. Mission Impossible and, boy, something. Oh, uh, what was that movie, The Airplane? He was in oh, Airplane yeah, right. as one of the pilot or co-pilot or one of the guys in the cockpit there. So that family did all right from uh, Minnesota up in the Twin Cities. But, yeah, but uh, Matt Dillon, um, they either whooped it up or whatever those guys were doing in there, Matt would uh, (laughs) settle them down. So I appreciated Matt Dillon. That was when uh, we finally got a TV. That was one of the things my father liked to watch. So we got to see Gunsmoke. Uh, The other things were Lawrence Welk and Hee Haw and Pro Wrestling, which I didn't care so much about. But I, I liked Gunsmoke.
0: Al, I've got a couple people who have uh, written in on the text for some things for you here. And one says, is there a good way to attract Purple Martins?
1: Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Um, Some tests have shown they like the gourds better than they do the houses. And our Audubon Society has a Purple Martin complex of both gourds and houses and the guy that kind of ramrods that says he's kind of noticing that now, too, that they like those plastic gourds. There's also if they need a place to uh, perch. So uh, my dad would put up a, oh, like an old TV antenna or something above the house, so give them a place to perch. They, uh, folks will put out eggshells for them because they like the calcium. And there's also some folks will play what is a, the Purple Martins Dawn song. It's a tape, and they'll play that out there to attract them. The best way to uh, attract Purple Martins, I found, is to have a neighbor who has Purple Martins. And if he has a good, robust colony, you got a pretty good chance, especially if you're on or near water. Uh, They like water because there's so many insects there. And they feed their babies uh, copious amounts of dragonflies. Uh, They love to feed dragonflies to their baby and it just makes a lot of sense because they can they can fill those babies up with dragonflies if they're feeding them small insects it's just a never-ending battle to keep those guys uh, you know little birds they don't shut up they're hungry all the time and i'm sure as mom you just want to come over there and just you know uh, cram lovingly a dragonfly into their beak so they'll just be quiet for an instant because you need a minute you know you can't sit down and drink coffee. If you're a purple martin, you got no hands. You just, you just need a little time to yourself. So I hope some of those work. But again, gourds seem to be,
0: huh.
1: seem to be the way to go anymore.
0: All right. There's another, uh, another text for you here from our friend John, and he did say he saw a big black butterfly, a big yellow, black butterfly yesterday. He says maybe a swallowtail. He says it was big, and then he said. What does the sun use to drink out of?
1: What does the sun use to drink out of? The Big Dipper?
0: (laughs) The sunglasses.
1: Sunglasses.
0: So, anyway, he's at his dad's in Andover, and that's where he saw this big butterfly. Is that probably a swallowtail, like he says, yellow and black?
1: Yep, more than likely a swallowtail, especially a big one. That's what it's going to be. And uh, in our yard now, I'm seeing red admirals, painted ladies, monarchs, azures, the little uh, blue ones. Mm flying around and of course a lot of white cabbage butterflies and sulfur butterflies and a lot of folks at least i did growing up we called them uh, puddle butterflies because they were always uh, uh, on roadsides i see them down here when i went down to get the mail or take the mail down there they were along the roadside there, and uh, they're finding a little bit of moisture down there, but they're really cool little now, guys. Sulfurs.
0: is it the white and the yellow ones, the sulfur and the, what did you call the white ones again? The
1: the cabbage white? The
0: cabbage white. Do both of those lay their eggs on the cabbage family plants? Because I noticed those are the ones, and then you have the little green worms and things. Is it both of those, or just one of those? I know it's one or the, the other. The one that's
1: a real problem that provides all those lovely green worms, I go out and... Uh, Oh, I pick them off, and now I've put a little... No, it's not BT anymore. I forget what it is. It's an organic thing that I put mm-hmm. on to keep those green worms away so I can get some cabbage. Uh, well, I like cabbage, and they are those white ones. And they are okay. just... Uh, Oh, they're such cute little butterflies. I see them, and I love having them, and then I go out there, and I see all those. Do the yellow
0: ones lay those too? Because I always wondered, I always blame the yellow ones, but maybe it's been on the white ones.
1: Yeah, no, I think it's it's just the white ones. Oh, okay. uh, the, uh, The yellow ones I used to see in hay fields where there's oh, sure. alfalfa and clover and those kind of things. I would see them all over those fields as I, you know, as a kid I went out and I mowed the, mowed all that hay and I always, I had to apologize to everything and everybody out there. Uh, I don't think I apologized to the alfalfa itself, <laughs> but everything else I mowed along going, sorry, <laughs> sorry, sorry, I just felt bad, mowing down their house. I just think it might be like us, getting our house mowed down. And they uh, they were always out there. But sulfurs are, they like legume, I think. So if you have, uh, maybe out in the country you have vetch or something, and certainly clovers, so what else would be in there, indigo and trefoil. Uh, birdsfoot trefoil and alfalfa but all the sweet clovers and those kind of things would be where they would go i want to thank everybody uh, once again for listening i uh, i i want to tell a a short story here i I was talking to a fellow and I knew him because his son and I had gone to different schools in adjacent states together. He was a leaning man. You know all the leaning man They kind of lean to one side because <laughs> they have a limp. <laughs> yeah. And he wore bib overalls, as that was his garb of contentment. He said they're comfortable. And I said, how's your good self? And he took it from there. He was typically a man of few words, but this day his mouth had no lid. I hadn't asked, but he told me that he'd once been the fastest boy in three counties. I don't know how they document that, but he said he was so fast no one could beat him. No one was even willing to race him. And one day, he was carrying firewood home from a treed hill, and on the peak of that hill perched a large rock. He decided if no one would challenge him, he'd challenge that rock. He'd never heard of anyone racing a stone or even trying to race a stone, so he teased the rock, as he often did those slower opponents. He made fun of its slowness, and he decided it needed a push, so he rocked that boulder back and forth until it let loose, and it began to roll down the hill. And it still moved slowly, so he figured the rock was stiff from not having stirred for so many years. He ran past it, turning slightly as he ran downhill to mock the rock. <laughs> He tripped over a small stone on the side hill, and the large rock ran over his leg. And that did him no good. His days of winning races were over. So were his days of making fun of others. I figured he was making a point, but only he knew for sure what it was. It probably wasn't a true story. I can't say that for sure, but it was likely one he'd heard, because stories are like shoes. They travel. Please tell yours today. Remember, Heartland is well worth driving past. Uh, thanks for listening. Thank you, Karen, as always, for your wonderful company. And and I'm sorry I missed that possum song. That's yeah, I'll
0: have answer. to play it another time before you come on. It was just really cute, just people kind of dissing the possums that were coming into town. So, so don't worry, we'll get oh. to it. And uh, I appreciate you, too, Alan. You have a great rest of your week. We'll talk again next Tuesday. Look forward to it. All right, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Our good friend, Mr. Albat. I got a couple requests for you for songs. I'm going to be playing those yesterday. I got one for some Nora Jones. I'm going to be playing that. But today I got one, uh, Bruce Springsteen, and this is Jake.